to 1 John chapter 3, or turn your eyes to the screen. We're going to hear God's word. This is what God says to us. This is the message that he wants us to hear, to respond to, to obey. This is the message that you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one, murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in them. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another, for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees their brother, sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in them? Dear children, Let us not love only with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we have set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, then we have confidence before God and receive from him anything that we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. This is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another, as he commanded us. Those who believe, those who obey his commands, live in him, he and them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thanks again for your word, for your spirit, and for your people. May your spirit take your word and speak to your people that we might be a community who is obedient, submissive to your word, to your commands, reflecting the character of Jesus in loving one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said... A woman was surprised at church one weekend when another woman, whom she didn't get on particularly well with, in fact the other woman had often snubbed her, but on this particular Sunday the woman came to her and wrapped her arms around her and gave her a big hug of welcome. She was very surprised by it. She wondered what had initiated the change of heart. She got her answer at the end of the service when the pastor instructed the congregation Your assignment for next week is the same as last week. I want you to go out there and love somebody you can't stand. (laughs) Ooh, way not enough laughter in the room just then. (laughs) Bit too close, was it? Um, That'll be our assignment at the end of this service. Um, We'll see how we go with this. If loving others was as easy as simply giving someone a hug, then we'd all excel at it, wouldn't we? That would be easy. But loving one another is far more difficult. 
It requires continual effort. Because at the heart of loving one another is putting others ahead of self. Denying ourselves. And that can sometimes involve a bit of a battle, a bit of a wrestle. That's the reason why the New Testament, I'm pretty sure, just keeps hammering, repeating this command to love one another over and over and over. John 13, 34, Jesus speaking. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. Jesus again, John 15, 12. This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. John 15, 17. This is what I command you, love one another. Paul in Romans 12, verse 10. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Paul again, Romans 13. Don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul again, Galatians 5. We are called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. Ephesians 4. I therefore, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we also do for you. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, about brotherly love, you don't need us to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Hebrews 10, let us be concerned about loving one another in order to promote both love and good works. Or Peter, having purified yourselves with a sincere love for one another, earnestly love one another from a pure heart. Or finally, Peter 4.8, above all, maintain an intense love for each other since love covers a multitude of sins. Again and again and again and again and again, all the way through the New Testament, commanded to love one another. We know it, don't we? Why does it say it so often? Because our default button is set to self. When we're not walking close with the Lord, when we're not filled with the Spirit, when we are not in submission to him, our default button is set to self. Whereas the loving one another command, inspired by the Spirit, is to reset the default button to try and get us off self and on to focusing on others. That's why there's something like, I think, 35, 30-something 30 references to this one another phrase. Serve one another, forgive one another, accept one another, greet one another, one another this and one another that. All encapsulating and expanding what it means to love one another. And John, certainly in this passage... This is the message you have heard from the beginning. It's not new. It's part of the gospel. Introduced way at the beginning, we should love one another. In fact, he'll say in verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. It's the mark of being a follower of the Lord Jesus. And the Apostle John will come at this again in his next chapter. And he'll spend a whole paragraph on the love. And so I wrote about that in our bulletin article for today in the pastor's page. <clears throat> that I'm not going to focus on that this week, but that'll be for next week. So the Lord strongly wants to command us to be people who are identified by loving one another. We're going to look a little bit at that this morning. The Apostle John is one who likes to write in black and white terms. And sometimes the Lord Jesus was one who liked to speak in black and white terms. 
And for John in this passage, you'll see it come through again and again and again. He talks about verse 10. He talks about those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. There are two groups. There are two kingdoms. There are two camps. There is the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of unbelievers. It's the kingdom of darkness. And there is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of truth, the kingdom of believers. It's the church. It's the church and it's the world. It's the unbelievers and it's the believers. There is this consistent contrast. And in this passage, John says, this is identified, marked by love for one another. This one is identified by hate. Not so much hate for one another, though that's there, but particularly hatred towards those in that camp. Because it's the natural response of unrighteousness. It's the natural response of the sinful person to God and to his, his commands, his kingdom, is to rebel against it, to hate it. Does that sound true for us in our experience? We know that's what the New Testament says. It's theologically true. But if we're very honest with each other this morning, then we would say, I know people in this group, and I wouldn't say hate identifies them. In fact, I would say sometimes I find this group of people, those not in the kingdom of God, sometimes they're nicer. Sometimes they're more tolerant, more accepting, more giving, more patient, certainly more naughty. But with that goes the acceptance. And they accept the naughtiness of one another. When sometimes, in its worst case scenario, I know people who are in this camp, and maybe you do, and you would describe them as nasty. They can be very critical, they can be judgmental, they can be harsh. What do you reckon? Yep. But the identifying mark, speaking in these simplistic and therefore black and white terms, the church is to be identified by this love for one another. And the world, sadly, is identified by this hatred of God rebellion against him but an acceptance and love for each other but when push comes to shove that inner rebellion will emerge so too when push comes to shove over here that inner attitude of love and acceptance should emerge sometimes it's coded by this fallen body that we carry around in but nonetheless it should emerge if it doesn't emerge John would argue, that could be an indication, in fact, you're not part of this kingdom. If I cut you, you should bleed. Would mean that you're alive. If as a Christian I cut you, then what should happen, there should be love pours out. Because that's what's inside. If I cut these people, non-believers yet, those outside the kingdom of Jesus... If I cut them, then what will emerge eventually is a a retaliation against God. This is the contrast that John has for us. So let's, he contrasts the world, and we'll go quickly through that, and he contrasts that with what the church is, and, as he says, and what it should be. And if it isn't, something is wrong. Okay, the mark of the world, the mark of this kingdom, the word John uses is hatred. And as I said, that's the natural response in the fallen world, of people to the creator, to his righteousness, and therefore to people who identify with him. What's the opposite 
of love? Is it hate? Well, for John it probably is. Somebody I read somewhere in a marriage book somewhere, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Indifference. Couldn't care less. That's the opposite of love. Well, John's wanting to use the word hate. Uh, if love is a, as he explains it in verse 16, that we have come to know what love is, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, that love is defined by John as a self-sacrificial. Um, it's a caring commitment directed towards others for the good of others. Self-sacrifice, caring commitment, aimed to the good of others. Then the opposite of that is someone or something that is selfish, that it's insensitive to the needs of others, and in fact it may even disregard others and it seeks its own. Now I think that's a pretty close description of what it means to be outside the kingdom of Jesus. Self-orientated, me-centred, I'm the most important thing, I do what's important for me. I, am, I can be insensitive to others, I can even disregard the needs of others because I'm more concerned about seeking my own interests. Now, that's not true of everybody. It's not true of everybody in this world. That people aren't as bad as they could possibly believe, nor do they manifest those traits all the time. I'm not saying that. I know unbelieving parents, non-Christian parents, who are very self-sacrificial and very caringly committed towards their kids. But they're not in the kingdom yet. I know unbelieving people who have donated <laughs> kidneys to save another one, another loved one or another person. Can they care for? I know unbelieving soldiers or police officers or whatever who place themselves in harm ways to protect and help others. How do you explain that? Well, it's a theological answer, but the answer to that is it's God's common grace. That though the world has rebelled against God and gone their own way, and though they've got their dial set over here on self, and there's nothing else they can do except be promoted by sin, even though they may not be aware of it, that's the default setting. God in his goodness and grace has still left the remnants of common grace for all people. He sends his son upon all people. He lets the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. God, all love comes from God. If you find a person in this camp over here who is loving towards others, uh, then it's something God is doing in that person's life because it's not the bent of the natural person. Does that make sense? And that's theologically correct. But we may wrestle with that in terms of our own experience. In this passage, the Apostle John says to us, he gives us his only Old Testament example, he names him in Cain. He says to us, um, don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one. He belonged to this camp. What did he do? He murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his actions were righteous and his actions were evil. You read Genesis 4, you'll find that when they brought an offering, a sacrifice, his wasn't acceptable, uh, Abel's was accepted because Abel was obedient to God, he submitted to God's commands and he brought a sacrifice which is acceptable. Cain did his own thing, he went his own way, he didn't bring a blood sacrifice, he brought a, uh, an offering from the crops of the fields, it was the best, but it was inadequate, it wasn't what was required of him and he got huffy about it. And then God warned him and he ignored God's warning. And he had this anger, this envy, this jealousy in his heart and remember, Jesus says that if you are angry with your brother, you've already committed the sin of murder. 
But he not only had the murderous attitude and feeling, he actually led, uh, led that into action. He actually did murder his brother. Hatred, in John's definition, typifies Cain, the firstborn of Adam, and it typifies those who are still in Adam, in the kingdom of Adam, the kingdom of fallen man. John also reveals to us, verse 12, that this, in fact, this hatred attitude has its origin in a spiritual source that comes from the evil one. This whole kingdom is under the influence of the God of this age, under the, the influence of the evil one. That's why often they do bad things. Not always. It's not always the devil made them do it. But he is certainly behind motivating and applauding whenever bad things happen because he is destructive. He seeks to steal, kill and destroy. That's his intent. And Cain is part of that kingdom. Hatred over here, like for Cain with Abel, divides people, separates them. In fact, it takes life, murdered him. So let me just say this in passing just very quickly. If we as followers of Jesus in this kingdom, if we get angry with somebody and we actually, that's normal, that's natural, but if we harbour that anger in our heart, then we are letting the roots of this sin called murder get established in us. That's why the Bible is very clear. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't harbour anger in your heart. Deal with it appropriately. Express it to the person to whom it ought to be directed. Don't bury it. Don't vent it to everybody else. Vent it to the person that it's appropriate for. The Lord Jesus warns us about that. Hatred in this camp again is not only typified the firstborn of Adam, it divides people, its origin comes from a spiritual source, the evil one. It's motivated by self. It's all about me. It's against God. And finally, it's the evidence of spiritual death. If a person's life is marked by patterns of selfishness or jealousy or envy or strife or hatred, it's an indication they're not right with God, that they belong still to the kingdom of this world. Now, having said that, you may read this passage and you may get the impression that John, you may misunderstand him to saying that if you've committed murder, you can't be saved, you can't have eternal life in you. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Verse 15. John is not saying that if you've committed the ultimate murder, ultimate sin, I want it up there. If you've committed murder, that doesn't mean it's not the unforgivable sin. Think of people who committed murder, but whom God still graciously redeemed and saved and forgave. Apostle Paul. Moses. David. Thief on the cross, probably. So murder doesn't exclude you from the kingdom because of the sin. You can repent and be forgiven. But to murder somebody is a very clear indication that you're in control. That it's all about you. And it's not about laying down your life for another. It's about taking their life that you may have life. Self-driven. And it needs repentance, it needs forgiveness. You contrast that, what John says, with if the mark of the world is this hatred, those attitudes, all of those things, and the mark of the church is love. As hatred typifies Adam's firstborn son, so love typifies God's firstborn son, Jesus, verse 16. He laid down his life for us. 
Just as hatred has its origin in a spiritual cause, the evil one, so love has its origin in a spiritual cause, God. God is love. And love comes from him. As hatred divides and separates people, so love unites and helps people, in fact leads to people, laying down their lives for one another. Verse 16, Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Let's stay there just for a minute, a couple of minutes. We ought, it's a command, it's a moral obligation, to lay down our lives, to deny ourselves for others. It's to put ourselves out. It's never convenient. In fact, you could nearly say it's always going to be inconvenient. Remember the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan? He didn't ignore the needs of another, a stranger, an enemy, a foreigner. <clears throat> he sacrificed his time, his energy, and even money to care for another. And John is saying, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How are you doing with that? Of course, we need to be discerning. This is not carte blanche that we should therefore be giving to everybody without discernment. No, you've still got to be discerning. Because there's other Bible passages that will tell us that we ought not to give to some people. If a person won't work, neither should they eat. If a person is being disobedient and unrepentant, then the loving thing to do is to be calling them back onto the way. It's not about simply going out and giving all of your resources away. It's about being discerning. I like what Richard Foster says. He says, as followers of the Lord Jesus, we prefer to hear Jesus' call to deny ourselves father, mother, houses, land for the sake of the gospel. We'd much rather hear that call than to hear the call to wash feet. The first one has a sense of adventure, a challenge about it. Radical self-denial is inspiring. But the call to service, he says, we experience many little deaths. Service banishes us to the mundane, to the ordinary, to the trivial. And so sometimes we skate over it. We miss it and therefore are disobedient to this command. Well, love typifies God's firstborn son, Jesus. It originates in God. It unites because people are laying down their lives for one another. It's motivated by what God did for us in Jesus. It's motivated by what God did for us in Jesus. If you're feeling low on the love scale, and love's not a feeling, it's an attitude of commitment to others, self-sacrificial, caring commitment for the good of others, which means you can be loving without liking, but not for long. You can be loving towards someone whom you don't like, but you won't do it for long. Because sociologists tell us and practical experience reveals to us that if you are self-sacrificial and caringly committed for the good of another, even though you don't like them, you will grow to like them before very long. You can't stay the way you are 
God will transform you by his grace. Does that always work? No, not always, but most often. So don't wait to feel loving or feel like you like someone in order to do the right thing to be a loving towards them. Rather, do it. And then watch your feelings transform in the process. It's motivated by what God did for us in Jesus. For we're low on the love scale and deliberately meditate upon what has God done for me through Jesus? How much has he forgiven me? Well then, let me be forgiving towards others. Remember the parable Jesus said, Matthew 18, the unforgiving servant who was forgiven a debt that was millions of dollars and the same person wouldn't forgive a servant who owed him like five dollars and he ended up in trouble with a king, got thrown into jail. We've been forgiven all of our sin. Meditate on that. And then hold that in contrast to the little thing that you're upset with somebody else about. It's motivated by what God did in Jesus. And finally, love is evidence of spiritual life. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from this kingdom, the kingdom of death, to the kingdom of life. Why? Because we love one another. It's evidence of spiritual life. This is the gospel message that has been presented to us from the very beginning. That's why John goes on to say, he gives a very practical illustration at verse 17, if anyone has material possessions, if you own anything, if you have time, talents, possessions, abilities, if you've got material possessions, he says, and you see somebody else, a brother, now we're talking about someone inside the kingdom at this point, that's his illustration. <clears throat> if you see another Christian person who is in need, they need some of what you've got, whether it's money or it's food or it's clothes or whatever it is, and you close your heart to them, you have no pity on that person. Question, how can the love of God be in you? Um, he says, dear children, let us love not just with words and tongue. By all means, let's love that way. Let's say encouraging, positive, affirming things. But not only that. He says, but with actions and in truth. And in truth means either sincerely, genuinely, or it means according to God's word. Probably both. In truth. Sincerely. This is how we know we belong to this kingdom, that we belong to the truth. And how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. What happens? Because the reality is, isn't it, that we don't do this perfectly. There are times when we are going to get ourselves uptight and upset. We know we should love others. We know we should be doing these things. We've read the New Testament. We've been told enough times. But in our hearts, we struggle with it. We could very well, even right here this morning, be angry, be upset. Maybe even that's grown into bitterness. Don't let it develop into hatred towards another. That might be where you are right now. We know that we should pray to God for God to bless that person, but we'd much rather pray for God to punish that person. <clears throat> it's true, isn't it? Then what happens? When you're going through that process, that's when the evil one comes in. That's when he suggests to you, you call yourself a Christian? Christians don't behave like that. Christians are marked by this attitude of love. You can't be a Christian. We have doubts, we have questions, we uh, condemn ourselves, we beat ourselves up. That's the issue John is talking about here. And he says, verse 19, um, this then is how we know we belong to the truth and how we can set our hearts at rest in his presence. Now think about your life and have there been times when I have been loving and kind towards others? 
particularly those in the family of God, not only, but particularly. And if there have, then that'll give you peace. What if you look at your life and you don't get any examples? Well, firstly, it's worth examining yourself to see if you are in the kingdom. But secondly, don't look at your failures. Look to the cross and look to what God has done for you. He says, verse 20, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Trust him, not yourself, John is saying. And then he says, dear friends, and if our hearts don't condemn us, so if we are not beating ourselves up, and we're not always doing so, if we have this inner peace and confidence that we are in Christ and in God and in this kingdom, then we can approach our Heavenly Father with confidence when we come and talk to him in prayer. We're not coming before a judge who's going to belt us and discipline us. Um, we're coming before a loving Heavenly Father who wants to listen to his child. That's John's point. And he gives this amazing promise, just like Jesus did. And we receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and we do what pleases him. Obey his commands, do what pleases him. I need to move on. I can't expand this. And this is his command. Believe in Jesus. Love one another. Notice that. Note verse 23. This is his command. Singular. Believe in Jesus, love one another. Single command, two prongs, two parts to the one command. You can't separate them. This is John's teaching. If you believe in Jesus, you are committed to loving one another. If you do not love one another, you don't believe in Jesus. As far as John's concerned, it's as simple as that. Look at your life. Are you loving one another? then you're in the kingdom. If you're not, examine yourselves, you may not be in the kingdom. For John, it's simple. It's black and white. This is his command. Believe in the name of Jesus and love one another. Those who obey his commands, plural, live in him and he in them. And how do you know that? Because you know it by the Spirit, subjectively and objectively, that he has given to us. So let me summarise all of this and then pray. John says that we are to love one another and not follow the example of Cain. We are to serve one another and follow the example of Jesus. We have experienced what love is because Jesus has died for us and we are to express that love to one another, to others, demonstrating it practically. Not just in words, but in deeds and in truth. Loving one another provides an assurance for us that in fact we are in his kingdom, that we have eternal life. And it's by these deeds that we get this peace, this assurance. If on the other hand we have doubts and we have questions, then look to God and ask him the question. If you're in the kingdom, then he is your heavenly father. If you're not in the kingdom, then he is your judge. And you need to repent. You need to believe in Jesus. But if you believe in Jesus, you will love one another. It's inseparable. And if you believe in Jesus, you're loving one another, then you'll be abiding in God and he will be abiding in you. We know that by the spirit that he has given us. That's John's argument. That's his point. Your assignment for this week? Love one another. Find someone you really like and care and give them a hug.
Think about the people that you don't get on with. Think about the people you're a bit uncomfortable with or estranged from and pray for them. Don't tell them you're praying for them. Just pray for them. And through the prayer, ask God to help you to pray a prayer which is a blessing upon them. And then watch the change in the um, dial in your heart. It'll move from, I'm uncomfortable with that person, at least I now feel good towards that person. Will this cure all things and remove all angst? No. We live in a fallen world. Our dial is set on default to self. The Spirit of God is trying to move that default over to set on pleasing Jesus. We need to cooperate with him this week. Do that at home, in church, in your life group, in ministry, at work, on the road, in the shops. Be loving towards others, the mark of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the reminder that we have to love one another. <clears throat> Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we haven't been doing that. And we've harboured anger, gotten it wrong. Help us and shape us to be like Jesus, to lay down our lives for one another. We pray for those outside the kingdom, for those who are resistant to you, who have this mark called uh, self and indifference and sometimes animosity, hostility towards you especially. You're very patient, Lord. Help us likewise to be patient and loving and to share the gospel that their lives might be changed and transformed, that they might be forgiven and they might experience your love and our love. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.